The recording that follows was made in 2006 during one of the informal Friday afternoon seminars which Professor René Girard and those interested in his work had been convening since the late 1980s. The seminars were generally held every two weeks when Professor Girard was on campus. Intended to facilitate exploration and critique of Girard's mimetic theory with graduate students and visiting scholars, the seminar eventually grew to include non-academics as well. Usually, one of the participants would present a paper they were working on, and a freewheeling discussion would ensue. On this occasion, Professor Girard gives a concise yet forceful overview of his theory and some of its implications. The Cornerstone Forum is pleased to make this recording available. Professor René Girard. I'm not interested in utopianism at all. I'm interested in the, the system of thought that I'm pretty sure lies behind the text in the New Testament that are talking about the end of the world, you know, apocalyptic texts. And I think that the main representative of that, or the main thinker, is Paul himself. And uh, I'm going to start with a text which is there in uh, 2 Corinthians, you know. Paul very often talks about a doctrine which uh, would come from God, and that God has taught him about what must follow the law, which is essentially the inclusion of the Gentiles into Revelation. But it's also a doctrine of the end of the world, of the end of times. And the, the introduction of the Gentiles, you know, into the religion of Revelation is regarded as inseparable from the failure of the Jews to uh, fulfill the demands of God on them. And that would be the crucifixion, you know. The fact that they didn't recognize uh, Jesus. But with that, there is something... <clears throat> I'm going to read the I'm on Corinthians, first letter to the Corinthians, Chapter 2. It's the first letter. Yeah, verse 6. Yet among the mature... Uh, my French Bible translates by the perfect there. 2-6? 2-6, Yet among the mature, we do yes. impart wisdom although it is not a wisdom of this age. You know, so it gives the impression secret wisdom, which the age uh, doesn't know about, you know, which... Uh, and Paul is not quite sure, because he always... There's always something tentative in what Paul says. <clears throat> and I think one should not imagine any sort of secrets or something or anything else. But the fact that Paul has some very coherent views, you know, about the relationship between Christian revelation and what he calls the powers of this world. 
when Paul talks about the powers of this world, there are two schools on that. The other people say it's just the states. And he calls them the powers or use funny words because it's pretty dangerous because the Romans were pretty efficient people, you know, when it came to uh, law and order. And that uh, he didn't want to be understood. I don't think so. The powers are in the plural <coughs> because the Paul lives in the Roman Empire. He's a civilized guy. He knows that there are lots of societies separate from one another and usually with different religions. And in order to understand Paul, one must understand that in, a, in order to understand ancient society, that society and religion are one and the same. You know, when your time in 1900 says religion and society are one, far from saying something new, he says something which is obvious before the modern world. That the religious system was a system of order and classification of people in rank and doing ritual thing in which, uh, uh, you know, that if society had a center, it, it was because there was a God who was in charge. So, although it is not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So one could say that the rulers of this age could be understood as uh, the Roman Empire. Paul was a Roman citizen, you know, and far from hiding the fact, he used it very efficiently several times in order to save his skin in Jerusalem, you know, first. Said, hey, you know, I'm a Roman citizen and I have a right to appeal to the emperor and be judged since they want to judge me for the high treason. It's a Roman emperor for me because I'm a Roman citizen and I'm not a new Roman citizen, but uh, my father was one and so forth. And there, I think it's in the Acts, the <coughs> Felix, who is the successor of Pontius Pilate, said, you're a Roman citizen and you don't, didn't pay anything for it. I had to pay a great deal. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Paul, and he was sent to Rome, effectively. And, and he had an idea behind in his mind, because he wanted to go Rome. You know. It's long after the letters to the Roman. But you can tell when you uh, read Paul that Rome was really the center of the world at that time. Yeah. So, yet among the mature, the perfect, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not the wisdom of this age, of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glorification. There is the idea <coughs> that this inclusion of the Gentiles now in Revelation, it's not some improvised thing, you know. It's God's plan forever and ever. You know, so in a way, sometimes it works almost like an excuse for the Jews. 
Paul never explains why the exclusion of the Jews for a while, because it's not final, the Jews are back at the end, that would make it possible for the Gentiles to enter. But that's the way it worked. And uh, which none of the rulers of this age understood this. And this, then this magnificent sentence, which is essential in my view, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, <clears throat> the, crucifixion, the crucifixion is an act that dooms the power of this world. So, I have an interpretation of this, which is very directly from the Mirelic system, and which is most important to me because I regard it as true, you know, not as some kind of fancy idea. Paul is thinking, you know, log much more logically than we realize. If what I say about the scapegoat system is true, the society is founded on a myth, by myth, I mean a religious system which, in some respects, resemble, resembles the Gospels very much, but in one respect is radically different. According to the mimetic theory, I summarize the thing very much. Uh, again, for you, according to the mimetic theory, what is special about man in comparison with animal? is that he cannot have a natural society. What I mean by a natural society is a society that forms itself naturally and will survive. <clears throat> and we know that animals have communities of that type. And man cannot have communities of that type. For what reason? And I think some people have seen that even though they fight too much. They are too violent. They are the ones, the first human, we cannot call it an institution, but people don't want to see it as nature either. Men invent something that no animal has ever invented, which is called vengeance, which is the mimetic institution by excellence, because vengeance means that to continue doing the same thing as the other to the end and you're going to die because the vengeance means killing someone. And when you kill that someone, the son or the brother of that someone will pick up the fight and kill you. And then someone will pick up your cause and kill you. Vengeance is transcendental to society. It has no limits in time or space. In the Italian mafia, you know, they continue in New York, and then in Los Angeles, if necessary, they turn around the earth and they will go on, on Mars when people go there. <laughs> and it can last for generations. The Corsican vendetta is like that. You know? In the 19th century, they love to write stories about vendetta. You know? They love. So anyway, vengeance is transcendental. But vengeance makes it impossible to have a natural society because it, it, it would destroy the species. In other words, man is threatened 
with its own destruction from the beginning by itself the apocalypse is first and how you see the apocalypse is first you can see it in another way animals have fights inside the community that's why uh, battles for females are you know if you go on the beach south of here where they have the elephant seals they fight almost to the death for these females but they never kill each other human beings many of them would and there would be vengeance and so on. so you cannot have it and I think that's a reason why human beings have prohibitions and rituals but so how are they born how do you shift from the natural system of animals which demands no superior intervention no intelligence no decree from outside but is purely yielding to nature that's why you know today it's a fashion to talk about animal society and uh, if you don't talk about animal society you're no good you're back in prehistorical times when they believed that man was different from animals and so on but man is different from animals in the sense that it doesn't have the same type of society and this society is still a mystery because how could you prevent vengeance and agree to have prohibitions you know so I really think that uh, mimetic uh, Man, mimetic relations create crisis, crisis of violence, you know. And the thing which is peculiar about crisis of violence is that they get worse and worse until quite suddenly there may be a scapegoat mechanism. What do I mean by scapegoat mechanism? People fight about objects because they desire the same object, the same female. Animals already do. But when one animal feels weaker than the other, he surrenders to the other, who becomes the dominant animal. And the weaker animal becomes the dominated animal. So the main relationship in animal societies, which they want to put a little bit on the same level as human relationships, are this dominant-dominated, you know, but the dominant simply means that every time there is desire, the dominant animal goes first and the other one pulls back. He's learned from the first time never to rival again his victorious partner. That's all it amounts to. So, if you have that same fight to the death, plus vengeance on top of it, no human race possible. That's the reason I think there is no human humanity without religion. Because mimetic man, because we have these mimetic fights, which can end up in vengeance, but can also end up in what I call a scapegoat business. When you have mimetic fighting, you know, 
as long as you fight for objects, there will be no agreement. The fights will continue between the people who fight for it. It will get worse and worse. But the objects will finally disappear, be um, torn between the opponents and so forth. The fight will continue, the fights will continue between the opponents themselves. As long as human beings fight for objects, they cannot never be reconciled. But when they fight each other, you can easily have two against one, then three against one, then four against one, then a mimetic contagion that shifts from the objects to the people, and suddenly everybody is against the same. And that's what I call, well, that we, what we call scapegoat. Not me. We call it scapegoat. But I think this phenomenon of uh, multiplication of opponents against the same individual until everybody is against the same opponent appears in archaic societies in situations of deadlock, of conflictual deadlock. And if this individual is really equally hated by all, his death is going to satisfy everybody in the same way. We stop the fight. And we are aware of that phenomenon. That's why we use the word scapegoat for it, because this use of scapegoat, you will notice, has no, not much relation with the scapegoat of Leviticus is independent, is more of a spontaneous phenomenon, then there's no biblical reference to it. When we say, so-and-so is a scapegoat of the class, my child, poor thing, he got in school three days too late, and since that time he's been the scapegoat. We know very well it happens with children. It's a true phenomenon, but only modern human beings observe it. And we observe it as false. Which is very interesting. We observe it as a phenomenon of the... It would be worth investigating, you know. And it's interesting that sociologists never investigate the real problems. You would have looked for whether there are studies of spontaneous scapegoating. No. Sociologists are not interested in that. They are interested in the East-West conflict and so forth. But, you know, basic concept. Why do we think in terms of scapegoat? We are not sure. But when we say so-and-so, why are they all against him? Oh, he's a scapegoat. It means, it means that it means nothing. Right. That it's a phenomenon which is absurd and nevertheless exists in human communities. Animals don't have scapegoats. Well, they do. But they are usually working pairs of three or so forth. An entire community. With men, it can be an entire community. So I think that why do I attach a great importance to it? Not because I have any observations at the beginning, but because it explains so many things. And it really explains <coughs> religion. People think that because I'm religious, I have a, a religious interpretation of archaic religion, which I don't. 
because I have a scapegoat interpretation of archaic religion. I say an archaic God is a scapegoat who succeeded. He worked so well that when they were all reconciled by killing him, they say, oh, he's not our enemy, he's our friend. He's a God, obviously. He saved us. He destroyed us. There are actual songs, you know, little songs in African tribes about the scapegoat. He saved us all. He destroyed us all. He saved us all. And so forth and so forth. Which enumerates, you know, the, 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 the different moments of scapegoating. Was there a sense that the scapegoat is false? No, it's not false. Yeah, it's true. It's true. No, it's true. But, that but it's, is, it's not really meaningful. Or yeah. No, no, but by definition, a scapegoat that works mm-hmm. is a scapegoat that is unknown as such. Mm-hmm. And that's the best question possible. Because you must not confuse the two. So scapegoat is a very strange conceptual object Mm -hmm. because it's there when you cannot use the word. It's not there when you can use the word. (laughs) That's that's the problem with your theory. And (laughs) everybody is confused about that. Well, let's say, Paul, again, you know, what is exposed by the light becomes light. Before it's exposed as light, it's it's darkness. darkness. But once you recognize it for what it is, it's become light. The very, it illuminates other things so, rather than being visible itself. It's true, and it's true religion as long as you can say the scapegoat destroyed us and the scapegoat saved us. And if you look at myth, I won't say all of myth because everybody can change me, but there is an amazing number of myth that begins with a crisis of the community. Then someone is discovered who is supposedly responsible for that crisis who is punished, and everything is okay. And the Oedipus myth is obviously that. The Oedipus myth, you discover that the man who is looking for the trouble is the source of the trouble, Mm -hmm. and that he's not a scapegoat since he's killed his father and mother, and he gives a plague to everybody. Mm -hmm. Who can be a better scapegoat than that? (laughs) See what I mean? Mm -hmm. So if you believe in the Oedipus myth, you don't believe in Oedipus as a scapegoat. If you realize Oedipus is a scapegoat, you are out not only of the original myth, but out of Freud. Mm-hmm. That's right. And you're in the mimetic theory. <sighs> so, you know, the, the bad thing that the Christian did is that when the anthropologists began to study these things, the 19th century anthropologists were much more serious than now. And they were interested in real questions. And for instance, they were interested in the relationship between the Gospels and myth. And the relationship is very close, since Jesus is obviously a scapegoat. As a matter of fact, Caiaphas says that. Better, you know, to victimize Jesus, even if he's innocent, and we help our relations with the, 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 the Romans because we give them a scapegoat to punish. You see what I mean? So he may well be a scapegoat. This is the ultimate craft uh, statementship. 
and at the same time, the ultimate sin, in a way, because you pray with a scapegoat. And uh, the, the Christians were always afraid of that. So the Christians said, no, 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 the Gospels do not resemble myth at all. And they should say, yes, the Gospels resemble myth in the extreme. Because as a matter of fact, they say so themselves all the time. Constantly, there is a crisis caused by the Romans. And we are trying, even deliberately, to help it with a scapegoat. What can be closer to myth than that? But why is it not a myth? From the point of view of the people who do it, it is a myth. That's why you have two views of the crucifixion. You have the view of the people of the immense majority, and they all say that Christ is guilty, the crowd. But you have the text. And the text is not a myth, but a critique of a myth that says Jesus is innocent. No myth will ever tell you that the scapegoat is innocent. It's that simple. It's not the facts. It's not the reality. Jesus himself, there, there is another word, from, there, there are words, not only what Caiaphas says, but in all four Gospels, he's introduced by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God, which is a sacrificial victim. But the innocence is in there. So the Lamb of God is not mythical. It's true. And this incredibly simple thing, you know, really should make outmoded all reasonings about the mythical nature of Christianity. But it has penetrated a few hundred people, you know, not... But obviously, the essential difference is there. So the essential difference is not the crowd, and the crowd today is still the same as ever. You see what I mean? Including most Christians. But the text, the few disciples that say it's not true. But we are in a world where the truth of the scapegoat is out, of the mythical scapegoat. So this truth is at the same time unknown, and so there is a question, a vast, immense question, you know, which I've never really touched, which is what has been the action of the Gospels on Christian countries since the beginning? And if you said it's near, you'd be completely wrong, because today the difference between Christianity and other religions, even if they look very much the same in some ways, like Islam, is becoming obvious. The fact that we cannot scapegoat people as freely as Islam today is becoming gigantically obvious. Yes. Even if we think we are anti-Christian and so forth, it comes from Christianity. It can only come from Christianity. Islam is normal man. And Islam doesn't accept the passion because sees the crucifixion as such an insult to God, you know, that it's absolutely unthinkable. The, the opposition between Islam and Christianity is mostly the passion. Mm -hmm. Well, and Judaism, too. Huh? 
Jewish religion. Jew, but the Jews are, do not act the same way. Uh, the Jews have... understand better. Well, okay, but it's still yeah. the current sure. No, anyway, Islam is very interesting because their reaction is a, the archaic one, you know. Mm-hmm. And well, the Jews mock the mock the idea of God dying as absurd. And okay, even if yeah, it's but it depends which type of Jew. Okay, you know. Okay. What's the what's the archaic response of the Islam that you just mentioned? What is the archaic idea? Yeah, is to regard the passion as the blasphemy of Christians who make Jew who make God the victim of men, unthinkable to them. And is that driven primarily by a rejection of the Trinity? This whole notion of three gods. Yeah. One, well, the notion of the Trinity becomes indispensable when you realize in Christianity that it's God who is crucified. <laughs> you see what I mean? And the Trinity is the way they can combine all these things. But the Islam does not understand at all. When, so the Trinity comes, the question of the Trinity becomes serious only if you understand that God must be crucified. Right. As long as you don't understand that, you don't, which have, is, a problem. You don't have the problem. And you don't need the solution. You laugh even more at the Trinity than you do at God crucified. You see what I mean? I, I think but it, why, why, why is the Trinity essential? Or I don't. The Trinity becomes essential once you realize that God, you know, and the question of the Trinity in the mimetic theory becomes very interesting because the question of the Trinity means you accept, you Christian, the fact that God is crucified. But at the same time, you want the imperturbable God to remain out there, immune to the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. So it has enormous implications that the mimetic theory reveals. Well, Maybe the this you, you see what I mean, but... That's, we, why, that's why you might have been burnt at the stake. I'm sorry? I he, might have burnt he, at the a, stake. As, as a patripassionist. Look, there are too many things to explain before. <laughs> with the, you wouldn't want to, to be raise. a pessimist, would you? I, I do not want to. Yeah, we all fear that. Yeah, we all fear that. Patrick, I was a yeah. teenage patripassionist. <laughs> yeah, you see, because it's interesting, the Middle Ages really asked itself the question. All the heresies behind them. There are real questions. I mean, one point with regard to Islam, I think it, it certainly is blasphemous in Islam to associate anyone with Allah, but the idea that God would be a loser, a loser in that's any meaningful it. sense, yeah. that he would, uh, it, it, it doesn't add up because God is all powerful. Um, and that's also, I think, the why victory in a military sense, in a political sense, in Islam, is not only preferable, but it's, it's morally required. That's right. Whereas in that's Christianity, it's godly to be separate. Yes, yeah, That's why what threatened Islam today is, in a way, the understanding of its own failure and its inability mm-hmm. to deal with that, yeah. to, to absorb it. Positively. Well, you know what? Else? There was a little debate in Time magazine a couple of weeks ago that, like, the Pope's visit to Islam. And there was this Islamic scholar at Oxford poaching on Christian or post Christian theory, criticizing the Pope for not engaging the other. You know? <laughs> and it's like, oh, excuse me, you have a simple monad of a God. Really, this whole line of argument rests on a Trinitarian notion 
where within the one God there's an other unequal footing whom you can embrace, you know? Renee, I would just make way to say a little more precisely. The Trinity actually emerges from the from the idea of the incarnation of God. Sure. Mm-hmm. Were there were there no incarnation, which it's Christmas. But you know, yeah, were there even, no incarnation, there would be the, no necessity. Even the notion of the, I think the tremendous yeah. thing about the the first Christians. <laughs> is that the first thing they discovered is Christ is God, without asking any question. That, you know, the people who positively interpreted the crucifixion support reacted in a way as they should have, and so forth. The first insight of Christianity is Christ is God. And everything results from that. Okay. The, the questions okay. follow. And what's know? the first thing that results from that? I'll tell you what it is. It's the re- redefinition of the nature, of the notion of power. Sure. Mm-hmm. Redefinition of power. Mm-hmm. Here is Almighty God, a babe in arms. Yeah. Embedded in the love of a mother and father. Who has no this, house. Who has no... But uh, this is a claim about the nature of the real power in the universe. Oh. On the other hand, you have the human idea of power, which is like the Marine Corps, <laughs> yeah, which, uh, which is weakness. The, the power of yeah. love versus the power of coercion, yeah. and everybody knows that the power of coercion is ludicrous because this as soon as you turn your gun away, they're going to stop doing what you want them to do. But if you if you enroll them in the love yeah. of a mother for a child, you have them forever. Okay. That's that, and that's the power that's true. of which the whole but this world is, is built. This is This has nothing to do. It's absolutely essential. You know. But with the phrase, I'm going to. If they had, they would not, if they had understood what was at stake, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This is amazing because it's a definition of the power of Christianity on this world. Even though people don't understand, even though they are totally unable to say what we have just said, somehow, in a way which we should be able to define someday, the power of myth is shaken by the crucifixion. Already from the beginning. And in other words, the power of the powers. Because the Roman Empire and all that, they are based on mythical gods. You see what I mean? And there is something... So the idea that Christianity is fundamentally revolutionary or destroys or is a force or so forth is, is fundamentally true. Of course it's true. And uh, there is, if they had known, they would not have crucified the world of glory. But at the same time, no one is able to say that. Yeah. Well, I think because... Yeah, you can run a second. Yeah, I, I, very much because... Uh, I brought up uh, uh, what you call an esoteric kind of term, patripassianism, which, which 
Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. The yeah. idea that the father is Right, except, except, I wonder, this, this great emphasis, correct emphasis on the mystery of incarnation. Yes. So I take it very seriously. That means that that God became yeah. man. Yeah. And the tail God, what? became man. Yeah. Okay. But the tail that we that we read, the, 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 the gospel which is preached, is the gospel of the son who has a father. He's, yes. he's referring to his father. Yes. I'm trying to understand. Does does Jesus think that his father is being killed? I don't think so. Or that God as father dies. No, 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 I, don't, no. I don't think so. No, no, no. I, I don't think that's... That's where Patrick Parsonism was wrong, but the fact that the Trinity in the second person can yeah, undergo yeah. all the processes right, of love, right, including right. the suffering of self-giving. Right, right, yeah, right, so, right. But, but, you know, you don't confuse it. And, and, even, and even the little bit of Islamic theology that I think I, I'm familiar with about the history of the development there in that part of the Middle East, is the influence through, say, Ebionite circles. So it wasn't that the crucifixion was universally mocked, but it was tried to accommodate the killing of this just man by, by, by saying it was only a, a shadow that was crucified, which is the do, docetism or Ebionite heresy. Yes, well, that was prior to the development of the, yeah. the Trinity. Sure. Which is, the Trinity evolved in the... Fourth century and later, particularly after Chalcedon, in order to solve precisely this problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. What, 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 what I'm, I'm trying to emphasize is I don't, I, 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 and I don't think Rene wants to wants to have mimetic theory then uh, become a full theology in the sense that no, no. It, it then can explain the mystery of God. I, mean, I'm not I know, I know you're not. I know you're not. I'm talking about the the effect on this earth. Yeah, yeah. Of the crucifixion. Yeah. As spread by the first churches. Yeah. Only about that. And uh, what happens? And it's obvious that this effect is less in the first centuries. You know that many aspects of the early Middle Ages. You know, for instance, when the Muslims talk about the Crusades, they are talking about a Christianity which was much closer to Islam in those days. Yeah, yeah. And they were really like doubles in the, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and so forth. At the same time, there were possibilities in Christianity that were gradually waking up and differently in different people and so forth. It's such a history. But the question of how this influence spreads itself you see, it's a total mystery. The influence of? Of the crucifixion interpreted as it was as in the early world. Middle Ages. Because, for instance, the idea of fighting for the tomb of Christ was a kind of a revenge on the crucifixion, which was a misunderstanding of yes. the crucifixion. Yeah. You see, if you, if you read the text of the year 1000, yeah. uh, and uh, that's a Saint Bernard, yeah. To say, you see what I mean? Therefore, it's guys who are pretty powerful Christians in many ways, and at the same time are extremely different from us in other ways. Yeah. Yeah. You see, 
But isn't it amazing that at the same time you have these crucifixions, you have this appearance of someone like St. Francis, who much more embodies... Yeah, but he was very special. And he had ultimately tremendous influence. You mean St. Francis embodied the crucifixion? Well, let's put it this way. His whole life, his philosophy embodied more of the Sermon on the Mount, more of the teaching of Jesus about what real power is, which is not armies conquering by the sword, but giving of your clothes, giving your cup, feeding people. In his total conformity with the crucifixion, which is the climax of a life of self-giving. Yeah, but I think one should avoid the idea of a true theology or anything of the sort. But of course, if we are modern Christians, we'd give St. Francis much more importance than the Muslim would give him, considering that he's a Christian. You see what I mean? Anyway, I think that Paul is aware of that influence in a certain way, and that's what he's talking about when he talks about the effect of Christianity. Now, in that piece you read from Corinthians, Paul isn't saying that the powers, if they had known, they wouldn't have done it. It's not that they just didn't like it. It's that the effect of the crucifixion is destroying them. It's what feeds them. But in your view, it's the powers that provide the efficacy of the myth that creates the possibility of human community. Yes. That's right. So the effect... This is the heart of the apocalypse. Right. And so that's what I was trying to get. So that in the words of Peggy, after 2,000 years of the effect... Paul talks about the first man who is closer to animals than the second man who is Christian. And one could talk about cultural programmations. You know, the first man is interested in housing, hunting, war, and so forth. And the second man, if you personify him by Jesus, is interested in very different things. It's a revolution inside humanity which is brought about by all sorts of factors. But there is no doubt that the first humanity is the product of archaic religion. Therefore, there are people who say, oh, Jacques cannot be a Christian because he's against religion in general. This is not true at all. I say human beings are the product of archaic religion to start with. And you have to be the product of that religion in order to understand Christianity in any way. It's evident that you cannot start from animal and have the Christian revelation. But you can on the first archaic revelation. So, in a way, it's historicizing. It's doing, one might say that, you know, all modern sciences are making things historical that were not before, like astronomy. And the mimetic theory is maybe primarily a historicization 
of revelation. Therefore, we'll emphasize very much these aspects of Paul. Because in, 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 in Christian theology, uh, one theme had, has been, I don't know if it's really thought through, is the presence of God from the beginning. Yeah. And therefore, uh, in the past occasionally, we've talked about the experience of peace coming through, say, the archaic uh, ritual, the archaic of the sacrifice, that uh, uh, there may be a way of saying uh, there's an experience of what is then called the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah? Okay. All right. Sure. Maybe. Yeah, in other words, you can no more consider that uh, archaic religion is simply false. Something like that, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And that I find quite uh, fascinating, really, because but, but then we have certain glimpses through certain texts, yeah. early Greek texts and so forth, yeah. of a period when archaic religion is very different from what it had become even in the days of Plato, right, right, right. and especially mm-hmm. after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and uh, it's true of the Greek epic, too. Different in being uh, more violent and more irrational? In being more authentic. I use the word authentic for lack of a better term. Uh, more in touch with human reality. More in touch, in touch with their world. Such as in Parmenides and Heraclitus. Or, if you start thinking about Heraclitus, Everybody wonders what is main, you know, or people like uh, the other one. But anyway, violence is the father and king of everything. Some it makes into free men, others into slaves, some into men, some into women, and so forth. Makes complete sense. It is the founding moment of the human society. Mm-hmm. which is captured then in a way that cannot so, be improved upon. There was a celebrated, and, and, and the Hellenists here can tell you, there was a celebrated rivalry between <coughs> between uh, Heraclitus and Parmenides, not so? Yeah. And it's uh, it raised okay. in the scholarship. Sure. And it has to do, well, is it because, I mean, now that Parmenides was a priest of Apollo, and Parmenides' big thing was uh, incubation, uh, the erasure of differences uh, in the in the burial in, in the mock, mock burial. Come on, help me out. Well, uh, Parmenides is after Heraclitus because he criticizes him, but uh, and he articulates part of his position as a kind of uh, position against against Heraclitus. Yeah, I stand all the way with Heraclitus. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> Parmenides never needed to happen. <laughs> but, but, but I think beyond that, the pairing up of them and the making of a rivalry of them is, a, is an agenda of a third person. That's the agenda of a third person who wants to, and Plato starts it, because they see, they can doxographically be aligned as perfect opponents, one for Genesis, one for Lucia, one for change, one for fixity, one for reality, one for appearance, etc. So it becomes a kind of fetish of the doxographic tradition. How, how, does, how, does, how does one, how does one, like, so there's this increase in knowledge that comes through history of, of, of this scapegoating mechanism. And how does one, how would you say that this is, that this knowledge is from God rather than that it's sort of this thing that human beings gradually figure out over time? So if, if it had not been for Christ, would the Greeks have gradually 
figured this all out after 2,000 more years, or they handily won the history twice, yeah. right? But or with the Chinese, or no, maybe the Aztecs much longer, but uh, eventually they had figured it out. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't have any answer for that. Oh, you do too. Because don't we know, even doesn't the archaic man know, really, somewhere in himself, that the sacrificial mechanism is false? That it's an escape mechanism? And doesn't he have to no, know? No, I don't think so. Yeah. No, I because uh, in a way, it's a displacement <laughs> of the divine onto an object which is not. But uh, certain aspects of the divine are there. And the requirements of human order are implicit in many aspects of that divinity that therefore make it possible to have uh, these societies. You see what I mean? Which cannot be entirely dismissed even today if you oh, situate oh, them in their, their right historical context. Isn't the whole myth can't be a PSLA? Isn't the whole myth that works basically because it's attributed to people of God, right? In the arcade. No, no, but uh, this but, is the invention of God. Don't forget. Yeah. I know there that, is no I know God. That, but that's what I'm saying is only God could reveal. God wasn't God. God. There are societies, contrary, 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 all societies have religions, but not all societies have gods. All societies have the sacred, the thing that if you touch, it burns. And it helps you in a way because it burns, it has its positive side. But the personified God is not universal at all. What do you mean by personified? In that? that you can call God. The sacred is, can be compared to a gas. You right. see what I mean? Yeah. Or to a very high or very low temperature. Better that it can be compared to a person. To a person it's right. something that may kill you yeah. and that you need it because if it is a, a form of heat, for instance, there, there are societies in which if you get too close to the sacred, you're going to be killed, so be careful. Yeah. If you get too far away, you're right. going to die of lack of whatever. Yeah. You have to have, find the right distance. Right. The notion of distance from the sacred is essential. I, I have two things that I'd like to put in here. One is just a matter of information. I'm sorry? I said, I have two things to contribute at this point. One is a matter of information. There is, in that uh, commentary on on Galatians by Louis Martin, J. Louis Martin, a long treatment of the origin of this notion of the powers in Greek uh, physics. The notion that the world is constructed of, uh, of units of opposites. And uh, he makes a very strong argument to the effect that when Paul is talking about the principalities and powers, he's talking about what he understands to be the fundamental building blocks of the universe. And that these then are sort of religified and, and mythified. So, so there's a, uh, there is in that commentary a, a, very, a, a very instructive uh, background, the best that's available. And the same thing is to return to 
question, would we have figured this out without revelation? I remember when uh, your friend and mine, uh, Father Shiger, mm-hmm. out of the sheer kindness of his heart, was teaching me St. Thomas. I used to ask him over again the, precisely this question. Is it Thomas's position that uh, with the use of human reason you could actually figure out all the truths of Revelation given enough time? And he said no. That, uh, that Revelation is, is, is uh, of the essay, not just the Bine essay. It's not just the convenience, it's essential. He didn't have it without it. I assume that remains the position of uh, the Catholic Church because, I mean, right now it seems to be extremely important uh, that the Pope uh, be emphasizing the, rationa- the, yes. the rationality of reason as, because we have, uh, I mean, we, well, we're now at the absurd position where religions are advocating that uh, violence is, is uh, mandated by the divine. And it was, I understand, the Pope to have said, violence is essentially irrational. So it could never be advocated by the divine. So if you have a God who, uh, who recommends violence, that's not a God at all. I think he's also speaking of the rationality of and within revelation. I think the Pope uh, was bringing that up in his in yes. his recent uh, yes. address. Yes. And it reminded me of uh, this book, you know, it's got the title, The Scapegoat. Oh, uh, yeah, but, okay. And it seemed to me in the last part, uh, you are, you're, you're uh, expressing a, a sense of a continuing revelation, which has always been debated within Christian theology, uh, of whether revelation continues in the understanding of the interpreters. There's an, I think you're talking about illumination through time. Yeah. I, I think you are. I, in, think I, I thought this was the fullest treatment I've seen by, by you of, uh, of interpretation of, of, of scripture. Yeah, I think there it's the first time that I had ideas like about, yeah. the, about the historicity. Yeah. I think so I'm closer to the current mood. Yeah, yeah. that's a terrible contribution, contribution you've made to the historicity of Christian theology. I mean, absolutely. We, you're right. The, I believe for the first time we actually can understand what the cross is all about. And it, If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work. Current mood. That's a terrible contribution, contribution you've made to the historicity of Christian theology. I mean, absolutely. We, you're right. The, I believe for the first time we actually can understand what the cross is all about. And it, it,
If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.